What's up, listeners? This is Emmett. I'm here with Josh Breckman. How's it going, man? Good, man. Happy to be back. And it is movie time. Today, for our theme of Why Nothing Feels Possible, we are going to take a look at the movie Looper, which is, at the time of recording, out on Netflix. Uh, We're recording this on the 15th of December. And... I just happened to rewatch it. My brain was dead after doing tons of work the other night, and I saw that it was available, and I was like, you know what? I don't remember everything that happens in this movie. It's been a while. And then I was like, oh, it's actually, in fact, almost been a decade. This movie came out in 2012, and I started thinking about the year 2012, and then I started watching the movie. And there is this moment, and we'll probably, we'll explain the plot and stuff for those who haven't seen it, though I recommend people see it. There's this movie where, there's this plot, there's this moment in the movie where, because it takes place in like 2040 or something like that, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is talking to the crime boss, what's that actor's name? Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. And Jeff Daniels is like, like you and your stupid fucking tie. Like, why don't you do something new? Like Mm -hmm. these 20th century affectations. And then he says, you know, the movies that you're modeling all of this stuff off of are just imitations of other movies. Mm -hmm. And it was, I, I had this like moment of clarity in this where I was like, this is the slow cancellation of the future. Mm-hmm. Like in this movie, and even down to the situation that the main character, played by both Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, uh, find themselves in, because a looper in the movie, where time travel is invented thirty years ahead of where the movie starts, mm-hmm. uh, and quickly gets outlawed <laughs> for obvious reasons, <laughs> and is only used by crime syndicates. In the future, it's very hard to dispose of a body. So what these crime syndicates do is they send it back in time at a specific location, and these loopers kill the person and get their payday, which is strapped to the victim's body. And then they dispose of the body because it's easier in 2040. So they're called loopers because when the crime syndicate is ready to end your contract, they send you your future self back. You end up killing yourself, and then there's a huge golden payday strapped to that person's back. And it's called closing your loop. And I was like, that's you're canceling your own future in this movie as part of your like illicit economy subcontractor clause. Yeah, not only yeah, not only yeah, not only are you canceling your own future, but that's how you're making money. You that's, yeah. that's your job. It's built into it. Yeah, you're actually you're canceling other people's futures. <laughs> you know. Maybe do you want to explain what the slow cancellation of the future is for the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that comes from people attribute it to Mark Fisher all the time, but it's actually from Beefo Berardi, who has written all sorts of other books. And Fisher is clear that that's who he's pulling it from. This is in, I believe, his book, Ghosts of My Life, which people can go check out. I'm sure some of this is still up on the K-Punk blog. You can go see his work there. But it is the idea that whatever future modernism offered slowly started to peter out and winnow and whittle away until we live in the era of Tina. There is no alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, so there would be no aesthetic newness, there would be no political novelty. All of these things that modernism had on offer would come to a grinding halt, and that this is a process that Bifo and Fisher and many other people associate with the tumultuous decade from pretty much 1968 to 1978. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Culminating in the Fisher quote, he puts it, yeah, the culmination in like Thatcherism because he's British. Uh, yeah. So the institution of neoliberalism and then the dismantling of the the New Deal Keynesian state and and that that has like concomitant social uh, cultural effects so mm-hmm. that Fisher says you know you were never going to get another Beatles or another Sly and the Family Stone no gonna... and he has this great yeah. thing where he says we are as far away from punk as punk was from big band music of the 30s which is uh, I, I think a great 
like timeline thing for that, you know, that's sort of what he's talking about. That's what I thought was so amazing about that Jeff Daniels character, just basically saying that, you know, and there are all these Americana references that happen throughout Looper, which is really strange. Like it exists in this GE ad like version of Kansas that has since decayed. And there's always this like, blues music playing in the background for the early parts mm -hmm. of the, the movie so it has this mid-century quality mm -hmm. but it's in the corpse of whatever that is the other thing that i thought was prescient about this movie is when you see downtown kansas city that's what i assume the major city is you mm -hmm. know when the just gordon levitt character goes to kill people he does it out in the fields of kansas but home base is kansas city it basically looked like downtown San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. just insane levels of street violence, drug addiction, hostility, grinding poverty. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like just a lack of general law and order, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I think when I saw this movie the first time, I was like, wow, that's fucked up. And this time I was just like, oh, I've walked down that street. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I've taken that wrong turn in LA that has yeah. led me to this part of downtown. Yeah, I remember <laughs> when I saw it, I was noticing that I was like, this is a guy that lives in LA and has clearly been to Skid Row. Yeah. The, the homeless encampment scene where the guy boosts something from a bus driver and then he shoots him in the back. Yeah, the guy just like gets pulls his shotgun off the hood of his car and shoots that guy as he runs away, and everybody's just like, "Well, shouldn't have stolen that bag." Like that is the yeah. immediate vibe. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think there's any cops in the whole thing. No, there are no, no cops in the whole thing. At yeah, one point, it's an it underworld looks like, story with no police. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's yeah. there's one moment. Yeah, so the defund movement is incredibly sex is successful by the time we get to <laughs> and has taken itself to literal extremes, I guess. But there's a moment where Bruce Willis is running away from what you think is a cop car, and then you realize it's actually just him being chased down by the mafiosos that Jeff Daniels is running. Right. at that time and i was like i had that this the watch watch through i did this morning again i was like yeah that's not a cop car is it right like there's just no it feels like videodrome in that way where mm -hmm. there's no interaction with the state mm -hmm. at any moment mm -hmm. that's what's amazing about videodrome when i was talking about it with jeff schoenberger is we realized like it's all just media companies and corporations Right. having this internecine conflict that leads to parapolitical violence right like the cia isn't here you know the canadian government isn't here like nothing's that realm is gone and this movie was the same and it was better than i expected it to be having not seen it for a while because i'm so used to things that i thought were cool in my like 20s actually being sucky and i think that's fair you know what i mean like you've like, got rules and then 10 years later you're just like yeah and then 10 years later you're just like i was so juvenile at 22. i thought it held up really well me too yeah um watching it now i just wanted to add to that the thing jeff daniels says about there not being a you're you're copying a copy mm -hmm. there's a sly joke in there because his in the, his costume because he's kind of dressing like John Paul Belmondo in the uh, French New Wave film, in Godard's yeah. French New Wave films, who's dressing like what he thinks like an American, like cop gangster guy looks like. So it's like, yeah, it's an imitation of an imitation. Imitation, it's, of an imitation. That was like Belmondo and Godard's kind of homage to American. Yeah, no, I, that's then, great. I did not yeah, catch that. I thought that that's... The skinny tie and the tight jacket and yeah. the whole ensemble is kind of a nod to that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, he explicitly says that. And there's so many great design elements in the thing. Like everybody's driving cars from the 2010s. Even yeah. though it's 2044, it's 30 years later. And they, they did like, it's clear that nobody's making anything anymore it's so like you just have to keep up keep maintaining the old things because there's no new stuff like she has like there's a shot at the diner when they're chasing him down and it's an establishing shot and there's a the bicycle there which shows you or the motorbike that shows you that he's there but there's also like a water cistern outside mm -hmm. um, all the vehicles have like biodiesel tubing attached 
I don't know if you saw it. Like, yeah, I did. And stuff. Yeah, there's water cisterns everywhere. Cause, and, and she, there's a scene where she like fixes a drone that sprays, does her crop dusting. So yeah, just a lot of great little design elements that just suggest that kind of what Fisher was saying, that nothing new has been created. We're, they're just sort of maintaining the, the artifacts that were brought to them in the past. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, but, and then the thing that I thought was even more interesting that I, because I think you had planted that seed. So you, you, you kill guys, you dispose of their bodies. If you're a looper, then the, then you eventually you get sent back your own self with a golden payday and you have 30 years to live before they, you know, you're going to die. And the, the assumption is that you're going to be rich for those 30 years, relatively rich and do whatever you want. And then they have the montage where he, it's the alternate timeline where he becomes old Joe and maybe I'm skipping ahead here. So stop no, me. no, no. So what happens is just to, just to be clear, Joe, the character played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and, and Bruce Willis goes to get sent himself back, except instead of the head being covered by a bag, it's Bruce Willis looking directly at him. Bruce Willis knocks him out and it's like, hop on a train and get the fuck out of town. Because as we find out from what tragically happens to Paul Dano's character, a fantastic cameo, I might add, because I love Paul Dano, is uh, he, that if you don't close your loop, they do brutal things to you. Mm-hmm. Including yeah. have this doctor cut off your limbs, which then suddenly disappear off the body of your future self. Right. Which I thought was fantastically horrific. Until you until you want to die because that yeah. is a worse reality than than yeah yeah exactly so that's what happens and instead of it just picking up linearly it cuts to the alternate timeline where Joe gets his bag and gets out of town as if he does actually close his loop importantly another thing that I think it feels very prophetic right now is that part of Joe's whole character is that he's teaching himself French so that when he gets his golden payday, he can go to France. Jeff Daniels is like, you need to go to Shanghai. Do not go to France. I'm from the future. Listen to what I'm telling you. And that felt (laughs) very real to me watching that. And that's what his character does. And then his character falls in love and whatever whatever and then they come to kill him and they kill her in the process mm-hmm. are we spoiling you can cut this out dude no this is <laughs> it's a 10 year old movie yeah exactly <laughs> if you haven't seen it by now yeah so they kill the wife and then old joe played by bruce willis goes back in time to stop that outcome from happening the thing that so they do this whole montage which is actually a flashback whatever and he goes to shanghai instead of france and because he's a drug addict and because he doesn't know how to do anything else, he goes back to work. Yeah. He just does his he job in Shanghai. Tons of money. Yeah. So you kind of realize that. So like the whole the thing is a metaphor for like the old, the old style of working, which was uh, work for 20 to 30 years and get a retirement that lasts 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. and enjoy your winnings and do whatever you want. But again, with the slow cancellation of the future, that mode of employment and that pattern of a life is gone as well. So when you get your winnings to go do whatever you want, you find yourself very quickly back at work. Yeah. And so, and the reason he goes to Shanghai isn't, you think when Jeff Daniels tells him that it's because like Shanghai is a more happening place and Paris is, you know, nothing, which might be true. But yeah. you also kind of realize that the American gangsters are really the farm team for the future Chinese syndicates. Syndicates, And all they're doing in their looper years is just getting comfortable with killing and underworld life and getting addicted to drugs and having this same old pattern on loop of killing someone, going to party, getting high with your friends, hiring a hooker, going to bed, right? So they're living a, like a very workaday factory life it's kind of industrial in that way like mm-hmm. that everything is the same you just process the thing you know you pull yeah. the trigger you dump the body in the inferno you know and then so he goes to shanghai and then he spends all his money so he has to work again so he doesn't get to retire he never retires no until he meets this woman 
So that's the actual part where he actually gets the the dream life that he was promised the whole time. But that's not a guarantee. That just happened to be an accident mm-hmm. of like he happened to be in that place doing some kind of mafia hit job. So I thought that was super interesting, too, because they didn't really dwell on it. It's just that one sequence. But the whole setup is just a con to get you hooked in so that you keep working for them in the future as well. Yes, because the other thing that happens is people's loops starting to get closed at a more frequent rate. And what we learn from Paul Dano's loop is that there is this guy in the future who takes over the syndicate and starts closing loops. And when you realize that everything goes down in Shanghai, you're like, okay, these are international conglomerate gangsters. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you could access. It's globe spanning in a way that like we don't think of when we think of gangsters or they are just coming straight out of China. But I think it's a little bit more like it's the globalization of the black market Mm -hmm. to, to becoming a more present, prominent sector of the economy in this. And that's what was so fascinating about the confrontation between young and old Joe. Mm-hmm. Where young Joe's just like, I'm not going to fucking help you, man. I don't care that your wife is dead. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen to me. I'm going to live a different type of life. Right. Like this is your, and he's just like, your life isn't worth living. Your life has been shit up until the moment you meet this woman. And you need to understand that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's actually a father son interaction, which is great. Yeah. It's the same person, but yeah. <laughs> and so the, the way that, Bruce Willis figures out how to solve this problem is to go and kill this rainmaker, the guy who's closing all the loops when he's a child and somebody has given him the medical birth certificate information and he's going to track them down. And that gets strange, right? Like, I mean, I do think that the first like 30, 45 minutes are a lot stronger mm-hmm. than the latter half of the movie. And that's for a few reasons. Joseph Gordon-Levitt ends up at this farm where he thinks that one of these kids has been born. And and he has to. he's waiting for Bruce Willis to show up mm-hmm. because Bruce Willis is just straight up murdering kids for a good 15 minutes of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's just straight Boba Fetting toddlers, <laughs> like, yep. walking yeah. into suburban homes and just being like, Blah! yeah, there's actually an interesting side anecdote on that. When that came out, I remember Ryan did an interview, they test screened some of it and they had to change the arrangement of some of the scenes because Bruce Willis is so firmly coded in everyone's imagination as the good guy. Yeah. That they, even though they would like show the kid and then cut to the gun and then cut to the finger and the trigger and then the sound effect would go off. It was like, yes, he clearly killed the kid, mm-hmm. but the audiences got confused because they were like, so what happened after he pulled the trigger? Like people couldn't really, it didn't, yeah, they didn't process that Bruce Willis had killed a kid because he's so, he's the good guy always. So they had to, you know, make it intensely clear they had to really like underline that they were trying to be a little bit more subtle about it because obviously they didn't want to have kids getting hurt you know well and you don't you also don't want it to be like an exploitation flick you if you can get away with being more subtle right and you should right Right. (laughs) but uh they couldn't (laughs) yeah so that was an interesting interesting thing but he's driven by his well he's driven by his desire to save his wife from that fate and in the end, that's how young Joe phrases it. A man who would kill to save his wife, a mm. woman who would die to save her son. Yeah, because the kid that he's protecting ends up being the Rainmaker. And the Rainmaker gets created because Bruce Willis murders his mother and trying to do that. And so when he grows up, he starts ruthlessly purging all of the loopers. And even it's implied goes into the underworld again mm-hmm. with, you know, just becomes a, a dark a vicious son of a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they see that early in the movie. I guess we, we didn't really talk about that yet, that 
that there's been a mutation in the Latinx 30 years that some people have telekinetic powers, but they're very mild and they can just move small objects around in circles. Mm -hmm. And then the Rainmaker is a child who has explosive power. Yeah. His mother has the small power. And then I guess now the mutation is developing generationally, which I also thought that was a really good touch because the way he said it in the expository part was, you know, we thought we got telekinesis, but it was very disappointing because people could only do like bar tricks with it. Yeah. They can only do like magic. And he's like, instead we have a bunch of assholes floating quarters. Right? And it's like, well, yeah, but that's also not how mutations work after a couple of generations that it could get interesting. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in a story like I think X-Men, it, it's like instantaneous, right? Like the Yeah. It's just like all of a sudden there's no, no real trajectory there. I mean, the amount that this, it's very well structured plot wise, mm-hmm. the amount that it gets done I was just very impressed by, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, this is a lot of stuff coming together. I mean, what made it feel old, this was another thing that felt like the slow cancellation of the future. So one of the things I've said on this podcast is everything feels like a three-star movie now. Mm-hmm. And I realized that Looper was probably one of the last times I sat down to watch a popcorn flick and was impressed by its nimbleness, mm-hmm. its coherent plot structure, its characters mm-hmm. with obvious and understandable motives Mm -hmm. it does a lot of showing instead of telling despite having exposition in it Mm -hmm. you know and these are things that i like just don't see anymore Mm -hmm. what was also interesting is that it's obviously done right before social media takes over all of our lives yep because the one thing that everybody has to solve for when they're doing stuff about the present moment and onwards is what do we do with texting and cell phones in general and this movie had none of that it really felt like a time capsule in that way yeah i was like this might have been one of the last sci-fis you could make yeah yeah no totally no and i that's one just uh, ryan's about my age and he clearly one i one thing i really enjoy a lot of people are very critical of his movies. I really enjoy watching them because I can tell that he was watching all the stuff I watched. We were all watching the same stuff. Yeah. And it made it all into his movies. And so like, again, why I think that feeling of quality, I mean, there's some very Spielbergian moments. There's, you know, there's there's Close Encounters of Third Kind in there. There's Terminator in there. There's Firestarter and Carrie in there. There's just a lot, a little bit of Indiana Jones even. Twister in this movie. Yeah, no, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And, and it's great. And you can kind of see that, uh, but he's also understanding why those things worked visually and why they were well executed at the visual storytelling level. And so there's just some really beautiful visual moments that are just really memorable, land really hard. And, and part of the structure of the storytelling too, is that he seeds a lot of information individually, like the mm-hmm. telekinesis stuff, you know, they don't, you know, belabor a lot of things and he just he does a lot of showing it instead of telling. So it's just really good filmmaking in that regard. There's this moment that I thought was really amazing where, so you get silver every time you kill someone mm-hmm. it's strapped to their back and you exchange it for cash that you can then go spend. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is saving it more thoughtfully than pretty much the rest of his cohort. Mm-hmm. Right. And that all happens in one scene that also has this other nice moment. He shows up at a pawn shop. There is literally like this plastic file holder where he's supposed to put his shotgun mm-hmm. that's labeled as such. And it's worn out. You can tell that people have done it like a million times before. And he mm-hmm. walks to this door, says the secret thing and puts in two pieces of silver and gets a roll of money with mouse face on it. Mm-hmm. And then another one of his looper buddies comes in right after, right afterward and does all four of the pieces of silver he got from his latest thing. Cause you get four per. And I was like, that's nice. I know who this character is now. Yep. Yep. And there's those. Yeah. And the, that he's learning the language. And then he says, you know, when he explains the looping part, killing your future self or your final payout, he says it's not a job for people who think too much about the future or mm-hmm. yeah they don't have long-term thinking but clearly he does and that yeah. is like what distinguishes him from his peers and like other people in the movie really and it's just just there and it just kind of sits there there's a little moment where he almost they're partying and he almost hits a 10 year old kid in the With street car. and there's like a poignant moment and but at the time you think maybe that's just like um 
you know, him coming, just having a brief moment of introspection about like just the sorry state of the world that he Mm -hmm. lives in. And then later you find out that it has emotional significance because of his childhood story and then the child that he's dealing with and how they're connecting. And he's able to empathize with that kid because of his own experience. Yeah, just a lot of great, just little touches like that, that work on their own. And then in the moment and you don't realize you're learning something and then it's just a setup for a payoff. Later that's on. that's the thing. That's what I was thinking about the three star movie thing. There is no payoff anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything's payoff because everything's a type of fan service. Right. It's like, yeah, you like this type of shit, don't you? You fucking monkey. Like that's mm-hmm. how every <laughs> movie feels now. It's like, yeah, you like action scenes. Here's a fucking action scene, you piece of shit. And yeah, it has yeah. like no emotional weight. It looks more like acrobatics than actual combat. Like, yeah. You know. Well, uh, speaking of that, there that was I. Last night, I when I rewatched it, there's a great, so when you first see young and old Joe, old Joe teleports in, he's a little behind time. He gets the advantage of young Joe. It's shot from young Joe's perspective. So it's like very action-y and he mm-hmm. like throws a br- gold brick at him and then hits him in the face, runs away. And then they show the same scene later third from person. a third person perspective and it's totally mundane. Yeah. <laughs> and like flat and the camera's at a wide long angle and and it just looks so clumsy and ordinary and just Mm -hmm. like some one guy hitting another guy like if you see a real fight on the street instead of a movie that's how it looks yeah just very (laughs) yeah like i've been in i've been in a few fist fights and they're insane i've also been a bouncer at a nightclub and have watched other people get into fist fights. And that, right. having that perspective is totally different. You're just like, you guys are fucking idiots. Like, yeah. this looks so yeah. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that was so great, too. And it, and it was kind of reverse fancy. Like, he doesn't have to, you know, the, the, the three-star movie now would, you know, have retold that from Old Joe's perspective and made it equally action-y. Yeah. You know, and just making it flat like that was just such a great idea. And it was yeah. a really it was a really nice touch. And I think the other thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was how this was again, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, came out in twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. So this is an election year. It's Obama v. Romney. <laughs> Which when I look back at it, you know, one of the things that I think is really f- like I did in, I think, 2016 or 2017, is I looked up photos of the convention hall when Romney lost Uh for the GOP. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at the photos of the convention hall when Hillary lost Mm -hmm. for the DNC. And I was like, this was the moment that a lot of those Romney people had been waiting for. Just a lot happened in that four years. Because people forget that, like, Karl Rove storms into the number cruncher's office live on air with Fox. And it's like, these votes are wrong. Romney won. Because mm. Fox calls it for Obama in 2012. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the conservatives are, like, totally shocked. Yeah. I, I don't – I mean, I had a friend, actually. Uh, he's still there working at Democracy Now! And he was covering the RNC – when they nominated Romney and I remember him telling me, he's like, I've never seen such a depressed room. Like everybody knew he was a loser mm-hmm. and it, nobody was excited about him. It just kind of happened that way, you yeah. know, nearly that kind of devotion and fervor that they got for Trump. So I don't, I was in the UK for that time period so that I was not like, in the throes of that election but there were- I, w- I was living in florida and i knew a ton of people who were pissed like they didn't like romney it was a similar situation with friends of mine who were democrats who were like i don't really like hillary right i right. just hate trump yeah. so much yeah. it was a similar thing in in my my view of it like maybe that wasn't the national narrative but you know all of that's happening i mean what else is happening in 2012 well, the th- things that I thought were really interesting, because I was paying a lot of attention to science fiction at the time, and I was thinking a lot about uh, utopian and dystopian fictions at the time, because I was in grad school for film, and I was very interested in making movies like that, utopian science fiction movies, as opposed to dystopian or apocalyptic. 
which was sort of the dominant mode of the day. Everything since like the late nineties had been dystopian or apocalyptic. So I was thinking about that a lot. And then the, the, it was interesting to see Looper's version of the future, which is pretty clearly dystopian, but in a, in a, not in a, you know, we 1984 way, not in a, we've been taken over by a totalitarian regime way, but just in this sort of decay. It's just a drift. Just a drift. It's an exaggeration of things that already exist. And, and also, I mean, the movie is really, I think at its core about how learning how to live for something bigger than yourself. And, and the, the part of the adrift that I think Fisher is also talking about in that quote is very clear in the movie that everybody out for themselves constantly. And that's just the accepted mode of being in the world. And it's the, the clear implication is that that has led to this sort of like, you know, unlovely future. But at the time in 2012, so Looper came out in September and March, David Graeber published an article called Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit. Mm-hmm which was about, among other things, why, you know, it was like, well, it's 2012 now and we're supposed to have flying cars and what do we have? We have apps, you know, why is that? And he wrote a very popular essay at the time about that. And outside of that political milieu was Neil Stevenson was also talking at the time about why we can't do big things. That was kind of how he put it. And Stevenson's analysis was much more in the vein of the short-termism of society, how everything is incentivized for short-term, prevents us from doing big, big projects that would take, you know, like a space project or, you know, yeah. something like that, that would take vision and, and also involve multiple false starts, blind alley, you know, because of our short-termism, any project that started that fails, the first time it fails, it's going to be deemed a total failure. Whereas anything, you know, to get to space, we, to get to the moon or even just to get into space, there was just a lot of failure for a while, you know? And I don't know if you ever saw the right stuff, but they mm-hmm. have a, lot, a whole sequence of things blowing up in the launch pad, you know, or blowing up immediately after launch. And it's like years of that, you know? Yeah. And that couldn't happen today because we would just say, well, it, we did five of those and they all blew up on the launch pad and that's the end of that. Well, I guess we're not going to space, you know, like, so that was sort of Stevenson's analysis. So, and then 2011 was uh, Black Mirror mm-hmm. debuted in the UK. So it hadn't made it to the States and didn't make it to the States until 2015, 2016. But at the time I, I happened to be in the UK. And so I was, a friend of mine told me to watch it and it was just absolutely mind blowing watching that first season at that time. It was way ahead of its time. I was about to say, like, you can watch it now and it seems almost like cliche. And you realize that it's like, you look at the pub date and you're like, whoa, 2011. <laughs> like, woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember thinking at the time that that sort of feeling of gratification in a way, it, it was like that stuff was all in the air, but nobody had really formulated it into a piece of artwork that could actually examine the situation we're in and be critical of it. And then Brooker did it and it was just exhilarating to watch because it was like the way he did it was in a way you never would have imagined it having been done, but also mm-hmm. completely spot on with a bunch of things that a lot of people were thinking about at the time, you know? So there's that sort of shock of recognition, but also the, you know, the excitement at something apparently novel or, you know, game-changing as it were. So that was going on. So all of that was kind of in the air. And I think like my personal obsessions with that topic, I mean, were also, there was, there were a lot of people talking about that at the time. Why are we always getting these dystopias? Why are we always getting apocalyptic stories in in narrative any narrative that imagines the future imagines a worse future well where is star trek you know like Mm -hmm. why is nobody doing that story anymore and star trek is just an action franchise now it's like totally stripped of its right but i mean just as the avatar of like a sci-fi reality that is ostensibly an improvement on the present day Mm -hmm. We've solved poverty. We've solved economics. We can scarcity. We can just go explore the the galaxy and be groovy, and you know, mm-hmm. and we're all cooperating in a multicultural, multinational way, and all that stuff. There's no an internecine human conflict anymore. So yeah, and so yeah, all of that was very, very alive. And then I guess three years later, after Looper, you get Fury Road <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> again. Which I think is also a masterpiece, but yeah. So I, I that was clearly in the air, and 
in the UK, there was Brexit wasn't really on the horizon, but there was, yeah, that was the David Cameron, Theresa May years. Cameron was the prime minister. May was the home secretary at that point. Mm -hmm. She later became prime minister and they had been elected in 2011. And yeah, it was kind of a dismal Tory, you know, classic Tory regime. And Corbyn wasn't really on the horizon at that point. So everyone was just sort of like, we're going to do this austerity thing. They they had a much more austere response to the 2008 financial crisis than, than occurred in the US. So, and as did Europe generally, especially the Southern Europe. So there was just a lot of sense of, you know, things are getting worse. Programs are getting cut. Spending's getting cut. There's mm-hmm. less opportunity. There's less, it's a harder scramble to make a living. There's, when I was living in London, there were a lot of Southern Europeans there because they'd been driven out of their home countries mm-hmm. because the economic prospects were so bad. And London was like the best place they could go. But even there, it wasn't like, it yeah. was past the Tony Blair, like late nineties, cool Britannia stuff. Where it was like, yeah, oh, we're booming and we're rocking and rolling and everything's going to be groovy. And yeah, so there was definitely this sense of gloom. I mean, that's what I remember from those years. It's also we're a year out when this comes out from Occupy, which was sort of a big nothing, you know, all in all. And there is really this increasing sense of Tina, there is no alternative, right? I mean, we've just had this global crisis and it's still business as usual. There's no like political subject anybody can really point to. The left still hasn't really rediscovered labor. They won't do that for another like five years, mm-hmm. four or five years. And, you know, there's still sort of the hangover from the war on terror mm-hmm. and its consequences as well. And when I look back at all of that, I mean, this is like pre BLM, this is pre Syriza. Mm hmm. When I look back on all of that, I'm like, this past decade from 2012 to 2022 is fucking packed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Heavily plotted. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, well, then it's interesting, though, because I I felt like Looper still held up. I didn't see anything that was like. No, no, it totally holds up. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a way, it's like, even though there's been a lot of events in the interim, I think in a way we're still, I, I, well, maybe we should talk about that. Are we still in the slow cancellation of the future mode or, or not? Yeah. I mean, that's what I kept thinking about when I was watching the movie is I just kept reflecting on the last decade or so. I kept thinking about the theme of this podcast, what we've been trying to take a look at and I, the way that I'm starting to look at it is that I do believe that the future that modernity envisioned is likely, quote unquote, like canceled at this point. I think. Mm -hmm. I don't like saying that because when I say it, I just get really bummed. (laughs) (laughs) Being a modernist. (laughs) You know, I'm just like, fuck. Okay. But it seems increasingly difficult to deny that. So what's next? And I think, I mean, that's part of where the Bunga guys are at, where they're like, all right, what's next? It's the end of the end of something, you know, but what is it really? And I think now we're just entering a new era of strangeness. Mm -hmm. Like this is a different, weirder segment of this like interregnum or whatever that Mark Fisher thought we were locked into. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of shifting political alliances will happen. I don't know how long they'll hold or whether they'll produce anything. I also think that, I mean, the thing that I also felt while watching Looper is like, we just did not live in the Marvel hell world of the media yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't really fully blossomed. Yeah, it started to get there at that point, but yeah. Starting to get there, but not quite. I mean, it really does take about a decade to hit like peak, whatever that is. I mean, I'm in LA, so I just see billboards for every single new Marvel release when it happens. I mean, they're really scraping through the bottom of the roster for heroes (laughs) now. It's wild. But I, 
I have the least amount of hope for art and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so, I think that's 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 where I'm like I well, still think we yeah, could probably I mean, just because society has to continue, people will need to build things. Certain, like you know, and I do a lot of energy and infrastructure stuff now. Certain mm -hmm. stuff will just have to happen because we need resources to do it. So mm -hmm. decisions are going to be made around that, and they're going to be meaningful or what have you. But in the art area, it just seems like not so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of Fisher's quote, right? So in the, the quote from Fisher and Ghosts of My Life is uh, a couple paragraphs, but the end of it, he says, the shift into so-called post-Fordism with globalization, ubiquitous computerization and the casualization of labor resulted in a complete transformation in the way that work and leisure are organized. In the last 10 to 15 years, meanwhile, the internet and mobile telecommunication technology have altered the texture of everyday experience beyond all recognition. Yet perhaps because of all this, there's an increasing sense that culture has lost the ability to grasp and articulate the present. Or it could be that in one very important sense, there is no present to grasp and articulate anymore. So I think that that going back to what you were saying earlier, that sense of there being an interregnum and that we're kind of feels like we're at the, even at the tail end of the interregnum, even though there could be a couple more years of this to go, but there's no competing vision, right? So mm -hmm. it's, we're not really in the, the old world is dying and the new world is struggling to be born phase because there's no even sense from any quarter, I think, of what the new world would look like or be like. It's not that sort of mid-20th century Gramscian thing. And so I think art has a hard time at articulating. I mean, there's all kinds of mechanical reproduction problems, right, with art now because of social media and the internet. So, uh -huh. But even setting this aside... I think something you said in your one of your last episodes is it, it's just very difficult to know what's going on anymore just because mm -hmm. of the constant torrent of information. It's mm -hmm. hard, hard to form a coherent picture of A, what's happening and B, like what we would want to see done differently in any systematic way. I think everybody has some kind of hobby horse about, you know, I, I wish we had this in healthcare or that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But like what kind of overall structure we'd like to see reconstitute. And I don't know, you're, you're more of a student of the new deal, the depression, new deal era than I am. I mean, I kind of wonder if it was that way where there was just the sense of like things collapsing. And I know there were a lot of riots and labor action at the time. And it was pretty tumultuous. And if anybody had any inkling at the time that there would be this sort of New Deal Keynesian era that would last for 30 or 40 years afterward in that moment, the things I've read about the New Deal say that they didn't really know what they were doing. They were just kind of trying to throw everything at the wall and see what stuck. Yeah, that's they were, it was really an experiment. And some of those experiments were thoughtful and successful. Some of them were middling and many were just like actual boondoggles, you know, yeah. and total mistakes or absolutely captured by corruption. It may have been a good idea had that not happened or, you know, I mean, it's like any political project in that way. When I look back at that time, what I will say is that the world wasn't totally welded together by the market in the same way as it is now. And that's mm -hmm. a major difference. So that's what stuck out to me in the Looper thing was our relationship to China. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that when he cashes in his silver, he gets Mao money was such a great little detail and so potent as a visual. Yeah. And I love that it's almost hidden that every right. time there's a roll of money, it has Mao's face on it. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. Like that, that replaces the dollar as the standard reserve currency. Now I'm not saying that's going to happen, but what I am going to say is that that's a different situation to be in than you are in the thirties, because what still exists then is the idea of the nation state. Mm -hmm. And we're, we've moved beyond implies like a certain level of progress that I don't think is warranted here. And what that what progress even means is worth talking about. But, you know, I think it is harder and harder for us to imagine the common. This is something Mike and I were talking about last night when we were doing an episode on Agamben's book on COVID politics. Mm -hmm. That 
that seems to be very different from that era and much bleaker. You know, when you were talking about the loopers have a short-term view of the world that Young mm -hmm. Joe talks about, I couldn't help but think of Fisher's writing on the movie Heat, mm -hmm. where De Niro says, like, you know, you can't have anything in your life that you wouldn't be walking to, willing to walk away from. Right. Immediately. Right. You know, and that seemed to be like the speeding up of the world through financialization and globalization. And then like <laughs> the thing that happens in Looper seems like it really just slowing down to this steady churn of nihilism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think also that it's interesting you bring up the nation state. It's not clear that there is a nation state in the United States, what was the United States in the Looper universe. And that, but when we do get the Shanghai scenes, it's like, there's still like these gleaming skyscrapers and there's a lot of wealth. And, and we know that the time travel technology is illegal and enforced. So presumably somebody's some enforcing the apparatus there. But like the U.S. has just been turned into this like developing country backwater where like it's basically just sort of local warlordism. That's undeveloping America. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I think just to tie into that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it, it does still hold up for those reasons, though. We're still in that interregnum period. And although I think he could at that time and in that movie, you know, talk about the present still there was still an, an ability to do that that maybe doesn't exist anymore well and i think it goes to what fisher was noticing when he says everyday life has been changed beyond the point of rec recognition by the way that these technologies and especially b what social media becomes has changed it i mean i've talked with default friend about this at length about mm -hmm. how do you show texting on screen i know i've already brought that up but also like how do you show online friendship on the screen because that's becoming an important part of people's lives every day mm -hmm. you know there are people that i talk to online that i've talked to for years now i've never met them in person i may have never even seen an actual photo of them <laughs> what the fuck is that yeah, yeah. There, there well interestingly in that period that was also when bbc sherlock came out oh um, yeah I think it was around 2012, 2013. And that actually had built texting into the storyline. I don't know if you remember that, how they did I, that. I barely remember that, yeah. But And they would show that as on-screen graph. Like the character would look down at the phone and then you would see what they were reading, mm -hmm. but not cutting to the phone, but like they would just show the text on the screen. Yeah. And it was incorporated into the visual in a very elegant, clever way. And the way they animated and placed it also, you know, fit with the tone and theme of the scene. It was very well done. But I remember seeing that at the time and that being a very innovative use of illustrating this world where everyone's online all the time and the online phenomena are permeating into real life in ways. And then of course, Black Mirror. But Well, I also think that there's this thing happening with all of that where it's like the world of the visual medium is now becoming swallowed by the world of text. Mm -hmm. And I would think that that is probably something very few people saw coming like 50 years ago mm -hmm. when there was this idea of almost like televisual supremacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fear was always that the visual was going to replace text. But instead, it's being reabsorbed. So, I mean, I don't know what to make of that. That's something that just dawned on me now. But yeah, I think it's not just text, but it's like emojis and GIFs and GIFs, GIFs. Yeah, however that's, you want to say it. That's totally dating myself. <laughs> Dude, I, yeah, same. I don't, I don't know how that fucking works. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's interesting too, just coming back to the Stevenson thing. He actually published a short sci fi anthology a couple of years after that, because he was going around, like, I think there's a TED talk and he was giving lectures at sci-fi conferences about the inability to do big stuff. And um, so he did an anthology of like, what would positive sci-fi mm -hmm. look like? 
And so he got a bunch of writers to do shorts and I bought it. I was really hungry for it at the time. And I was really excited to read something like that. But it was interesting in how kind of imaginatively limited it was. There's one really good story in there, which I can find for you, but, and I can't remember offhand who wrote it, but Stevenson's own entry was kind of uninspiring. It was a story about a billionaire who builds a space elevator because he's got the funds to do it so that we can like move goods back and forth into space at will, which is an old idea, apparently to have a space elevator, but no one's Mm -hmm. ever tried to do it. And there was some excitement a couple of decades ago because we thought we might have the materials that had the tensile strength to withstand the centrifugal forces. Mm -hmm. To, to pull it off. But anyway, it's basically like, you know, Elon Musk and Bezos, like launching shit into space for yeah. joy, except a little more utilitarian, but that was his big vision. So again, it's like, he kind of intuited the problem, but isn't willing to like take the analysis down to the level of like political economy. So he ends up with like, yeah, our best hope is like some rich guy's going to do some cool shit. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's where we are. Yeah, the rainmaker will come. Like that's right. the- <laughs> he'll do good things with his superpowers. Yeah, yeah. yeah waiting. Yeah. For what did you sure. What did you think of the ending there? What was it? What was your? Oh was yeah. So when he kills himself, is that? I mean, I. I had a harder time believing that his character could actually have that moment. Hmm. I was like, I don't think, I mean, they do a good job of him relating him to the child. And so I can get that, but it, the element of self-sacrifice mm-hmm. to stop that issue seemed less persuasive to me. However, I enjoyed that a movie was willing to take seriously what it might take for someone to get to that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and that it was ultimately pointing to this idea of things beyond yourself that make life worth living and thus also dying for. Mm-hmm. And I think especially after COVID, where there was just this return, not return to, but this exaggeration, this overcommitment to the idea of bare life and all of the security theater that has come to spill out of that Mm -hmm. that felt refreshing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i i think so that's kind of where i clued into his sort of 80s humanism it's kind of spielbergian in a sense and and yeah i think ultimately the movie is about learning to live for something or die for something that's bigger than you and the tragedy of people who do that because even old joe has a well i at first i thought old joe was living for something bigger than himself. And that's the way young Joe characterizes it at the end. An old man, what does he say? A man who's willing to kill to save his wife mm-hmm. and a woman who's willing to die for her son. And then if you, I think if you dig a little deeper, I think it's pretty clear. They have those scenes of old Joe reflecting on trying to remember, get the memory back of his wife, which he's losing now because he's in the present. And he's not really doing it for her. He's do- still doing it for him. He's still trying to spare himself the agony. Of- well, she's she's the redemption. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the agony of having lost the redemption. So he's trying to end his own pain through killing. And whereas I think the Emily Blunt characters, you know, she's like trying to save her son pretty natural. Like, I guess univocal impulse i guess is the word i'm looking for yeah i bought it i bought i bought that he would do that because they planted the seeds of him being somewhat forward-looking that he could see Mm -hmm. into the future uh, or that he was yeah he could think he could think a few steps ahead. a few steps ahead yeah yeah i mean i i think i could have let me put it this way i think what was off about that to me was him saying a man that is willing to kill for his wife had it said a man who was uh, willing to kill to like save his redemption or something like that. Something that more accurately characterized what the old Joe character was. Mm-hmm. I might've been able to trust a little bit more what young Joe was saying about that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not like to, to do a little defense of old Joe. It's not like trying to 
secure your own redemption that you've had through this experience of love is like bad in and of itself. It's a totally understandable human motivation. It might not be as high a motivation as actually trying to save your loved one Mm -hmm. per se. But yeah, I think that's just something that I was thinking of because I was also thinking about it in terms of old Joe, even if things pan out differently, still having qualities that current Joe has. And one of them being that he's the type of guy that will kill to save his own redemption. Mm-hmm. And that seems continuous with present Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he's killing to save his redemption though, or if he can t- so, so there's a part in the movie where he says, she asks him and then what happens? She's basically asking about old Joe's plan. And, mm-hmm. and he says, well, he, I guess if he kills the young rainmaker, then he vanishes. Yeah. So I think he, I mean, I think he's really after like ending the pain that he's in, but he can't bring himself to just kill himself for some reason, which is what young Joe finally manages to do. Mm-hmm. He can't sacrifice himself in that way. Well, I think it's important that old Joe has the wife, whereas young Joe doesn't yet. Mm-hmm. So in a way, young Joe doesn't have this thing to lose other than his life. His life can be for something now if he takes his own life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the important difference there. Mm-hmm. You know, old Joe doesn't kill himself because there's still a chance. Right. There's still a chance that he could have this relationship that was so important where there's no relationship to have. Well, yeah, but there already isn't. The fact that he's gone back means it's already screwed i mean i so, guess it sort of depends like if think, he gets but he of, doesn't, yeah i think he's just kind of i don't know monomaniacally focused on yeah because he says presumably he'll vanish if he kills the young rainmaker but he there's a chance but for someone else some other version of sure Not i even, mean there's also that this is just always the problem with time travel movies where it's like how many futures do you open blah 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 so you can sort of debate it endlessly but yeah i think i can Definitely see that it's just about ending his. And so, in a way, I guess that line rang a little bit hollow. Whereas the trying to save her son, I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> that is 100% what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that's just undeniable. And who wouldn't, you know, in that position? So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I'm shocked at how well that movie held up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everyone should go see it if you have Netflix. I'm sure it's like two bucks to rent on YouTube as well. So if you're bored over the holidays, hit it up. And with that, stay safe out there, guys. And thanks for joining us, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time.